0: Welcome to the Catalyst Health, Wellness, and Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Bradford Cooper. Every few months, we integrate a best of episode for those of you who, well, maybe joined us a few months ago. Today is the eighth time we've done that since we started back in 2018. And even if you caught this one the first time, I have a feeling you're going to want to listen to it again in the context of all that's happened since we first took it live. Right as COVID-19 was coming to the forefront outside of China, we had Dr. David Katz a physician who specializes in preventive medicine and public health and author of the new book, How to Eat, joined us on the show. He provided us a different perspective on the response than what we were hearing from most people at that time. That episode went on to become the single most popular episode we have ever produced, and it wasn't even close. And now, in the context of having lived through everything the past few months, we thought you'd find it even more intriguing. Now, disclaimer, obviously no one has all the right answers. But Dr. cast does offer perspective. You're probably not hearing the mainstream media. And based on the response, it's been of significant interest to many. Now, before we jump into the interview, we have an encouraging update for those of you considering pursuing your National Board Certification as a health and wellness coach. The MBHWC has been kind enough to extend the window for a portion of the requirements to apply for the National Board exam. As a result, we've been saying all along July would be your last chance. you got to get in. We actually now have time, thanks to them extending this, to do one more program in August. So if you're interested in that, that will fill up early, so touch base as soon as you can. Also, for anyone who would like to join us for the Coaching Retreat and Symposium in beautiful Estes Park, Colorado this September, we have confirmed the event will be taking place. And if you're like many who are You're just kind of on that fence about are your restrictions going to be in in place for travel with your company or personally when we get to September. We've got an option for you there. I'm not going to go into those details now. You can check that out at CatalystCoachingInstitute.com or email us anytime if you're curious. Results at CatalystCoachingInstitute.com. Now, let's jump into this interview with Dr. David Katz on this episode, a best of episode of the Catalyst Health Wellness and Performance Podcast. Dr. Katz, it's great to have you join us. Thank you for doing this on such short notice. Uh, I'm glad to
1: join you again, Brad. Thanks for having me.
0: There have been many additional developments over the past week since we scheduled this interview. How would you summarize the latest insights you've gathered from what we currently know about what's going on with the coronavirus?
1: Well, the contagion of anxiety is even greater than the contagion of the virus. Mm. And, you know, I I think just the level of preoccupation with the number of cases, the number of deaths is inevitably gonna cause that result. One of the things I'm very committed to, Brad, is is helping people contextualize this. So, you know, for example, in the United States, in an average year, about three million people die. We have a population of well over 300 million, so three million people, a little less than 1% of the population. Uh, and those deaths are, of course, highly concentrated among people with chronic illness and the elderly, especially. And, and we have to accept that's part of being mortal. We get old and, and we die eventually of something. And if we were to fixate on any of those causes of death and, and sort of, you know, if we gave them a, an exotic name, uh, we gave flu a new name, we gave heart disease a new and unfamiliar name, and the press twenty four seven were reporting another hmm. death, another death, no, I mean we would absolutely sure. be freaking out I mean there're more than heart disease kills in the United States alone every three and a half days more people than the coronavirus has killed all around the world in the past several months and and i don 't say this to in any way reduce the uh, attention that coronavirus commands and deserves and the respect it warrants. But we are all caught up in a significant degree of, of risk distortion. Uh, and, and, you know, again, this tends to happen when something is new and shiny and, and in the news all the time. So, you know, I, I think we're doing a lot that's probably unnecessary. I You know, I think in many ways the degree of societal upheaval that we're imposing on ourselves Uh, We're sort of doing it instead of the virus. So, you know, worst case scenario where lots of people are sick and can't go to work, everything would shut down. Well, we just went ahead and shut everything down. So it's, you know, we kind of have the worst social situation. It remains to be seen whether or not this will help curtail spread of the virus. But the practical advice I want to offer people is we should all be working very hard to identify those members of our personal networks who I would call EV, especially vulnerable. And, and the global data, and we can get further into this as you wish, Brad, but the global data indica- indicate quite clearly that um, overall 99% of coronavirus infection is mild, meaning no risk to mm. life, no need for hospitalization. Uh, you don't feel great, but you get better. And, and some people probably don't have any symptoms at all. And the severe cases are highly concentrated in those over age 70 and even more highly concentrated in those over age 80. So I think we could achieve massive good uh, if we all figured out ways to protect our chronically ill, immunocompromised, frail, and especially elderly loved ones from potential exposure. And that means things like them not gathering with the college students we've just sent home to everybody from college campuses. Uh, them not staying in um, gatherings that are multi-generational where the younger members have been traveling and exposed to others, Mm -hmm. Uh, them not being in big crowds in the supermarket and on and on it goes. And, you know, I think that targeted effort is really important and potentially a much better way for us to do something as individuals to help one another, but also for the public health system to respond.
0: Let's talk about symptoms just for a minute. What What are some of the first symptoms someone might note? You said in some cases you won't even know you had it, but what are some of the first symptoms someone might note if they are potentially infected?
1: Uh, Aches, fever, cough. Uh, This is, you know, it's a deep respiratory infection. So if you're sneezing, you have a runny nose, that's actually not likely to be coronavirus. There are lots of other respiratory viruses that could be, uh, but typical what we would call cold symptoms are not characteristic and actually tend to help rule it out. So a deeper respiratory infection causes pain in the chest, shortness of breath, fever, body aches, and a dry cough. Uh, this viral pneumonia that results from COVID-19 uh, typically produces a dry cough, so you're not coughing anything up. So those would be symptoms of, of early infection. It can progress from there you know, to, to a, a deeper involvement of the lungs. We've got a real challenge in striking a balance between what individuals can do to minimize their risk and what we really need the public health system to do. So, you know, if you think you have this, but you're you're not in, in severe condition, the last place you want to go is to a hospital or clinic. Mm. You don't want to go there because if you don't have it, you might get it there because everybody else who thinks they have it is going there. And you don't want to go there because if you do have it, those are the very people who can't afford to get it. You, you know, we don't want right. to test it. Hospitals, right? So, you know, I, honestly, I, I think it's going to be difficult for us as individuals to do all the right things unless the system is helping us. And, and the system should be providing things like mobile testing, uh, certainly, testing in sites well away from where sick patients or elderly people are gathered. Uh, so, you know, we're all going to be somewhat dependent on a well orchestrated public health response. We perennially underfund public health and prevention in the United States. We really don't have the robust system in place that we need. But there is a lot we can do, nonetheless, as individuals and as family members. So again, you know, if you feel, if you're robust and healthy and young, and you know you've got a, a dry cough, you're achy, you, you should contact your doctor's office via telephone and ask, "Is there a way for me to get tested?" Because if I have this. You know, we, we want to know because we're still trying to figure out the global epidemiology of this. We need to know who has it. We need to isolate who has it. So, um, call your doctor's office. Do not rush out. Don't take your systems your symptoms rather out into the world where you risk uh, transmitting this. Um, and see if there's an opportunity for testing that you know may not be available right now, but th- those resources are being developed and deployed. Uh, Obviously, you know, if, if you're in duress, so you know, if you're an older person and um, your symptoms are severe, if you have to call 911, you have to call 911, and no one should hesitate to do that. But we definitely want to limit the allocation of the healthcare system resources to those that really need it. And again, overwhelmingly, people with this infection don't. Uh, young people tend to get mild infection. Um, and by young, uh, it looks like almost everybody under the age of 50, very few cases of severe infection. It happens. It's not, it, it's not, you know, completely out of the, nobody sure. gets a guarantee, right? I mean, that's true about anything. Right, to right. Do Absolutely. You say the same about heart disease, right? I mean, you know, heart disease rarely affects somebody in their twenties, but every now and then there's an anecdote of this person was 22 and had a massive heart attack, but very, very rare. So, almost all of the risk is concentrated over 50, much higher over 60, vastly higher over 70, and monumentally higher over 80. So, you know, really, as you get into the age group that is at risk of everything else, you know, just dying from any cause in any given year, that's where most of the mortality is concentrated. That's where the vulnerability to severe coronavirus infection is concentrated as well.
0: Okay. We keep hearing this two week thing. Once we're infected, how long does it last? Is that two weeks? into the overall picture in terms of the quarantine phase when you're not gonna give it to somebody else can you talk us through why we keep hearing this two-week phrase at all
1: well what we're there, there are a couple of issues here I, I don't think we can say with confidence yet what the recovery timeline is uh, out of I've been tracking the the data pretty much on a daily basis and out of we have we have, I guess, 78,000 people worldwide, so just shy of 80,000 people recovered. And and it looks like the the full recovery for people who don't get very severe uh, disease requiring hospitalization runs its course in two to three weeks. But before that, there's an incubation period. And that also looks like it can be as long in relatively rare cases as three weeks, but not infrequently a week or two. And, And that's the time during which You've been exposed, you are infected, but you haven't yet developed a clinical syndrome. So that's referred to as the incubation period. The problem with that incubation period from a public health perspective is it looks like people can transmit the virus before they show any signs of it, which is why, you know, again, we really do need a robust public health system. So South Korea is really the, the one place in the world that has very effectively documented the cases and the distribution of of the disease. And they did this not by waiting for people to report symptoms, but by systematically testing the population at large. Uh, And and the result is I think we're getting the best window into the real epidemiology of this disease from South Korea. So, for example, I think everybody's heard about the, the terrible situation in Italy, northern Italy especially, and, you know the, the, the healthcare system is, is being overwhelmed there. What's going on? Well several things. First, uh, you know I think the disease was introduced to Italy directly and without any interruption from the epicenter in Wuhan, China. Uh, secondly, this happened before anybody was really aware that they should be doing anything to interrupt further transmission of the disease within Italy. so I think it became very widespread. Third, there's been no systematic testing, so I don't think Italy has a clue how many cases they have, and, and one thing people need to realize, Brad, and you're aware of this, but it, you know, it's an important issue in epidemiology. We, we always ask, what's the numerator. So if we think of the, you know, we're trying to figure out how bad is this disease, how, how often does it produce severe infection and death? Well, you know, the numerator then is, let's say, deaths from coronavirus. Mm-hmm. Well, we're not going to miss those. You know, it's, it, that's really hard to miss. But the denominator is everybody who has it. And if a whole bunch of those cases are extremely mild, that's easily missed. In, in fact, you're, it, it's almost inevitable you're going to miss that unless you go out and look for it. Well, the Italians didn't go out and look for it. And, and frankly, we haven't done that yet here in the United States either. And so based on the data, uh, I think Italy has 200,000 cases or more of coronavirus throughout the population. And that's why they're experiencing so many deaths all at once because it's, you know, essentially there's been massive exposure at the national level and all of the deaths that this virus can cause in frail elderly people are happening at the same time. The, the other issue is that, that Italy happens to have the oldest, the oldest population, the um, greatest concentration of people hmm. In in the eighth decade of of any country in Europe. So they have an older population. They had massive uh, widespread transmission, no effective surveillance looking for cases, no effective interdiction uh, preventing the spread. They are a cautionary tale for us. I mean, If everybody in the United States were to get this all at once and 1% um, or something like that were to get severe infections, that would be a very big number of people all at one time. Uh, so we certainly don't want that to happen, which is why there are all these arguments for social distancing. Again, I, I think that makes sense up to a point. I just think I think we could be practicing social distancing in a more concentrated way. So we are distancing those most prone to severe infection while allowing young people, healthy young adults, to go about their business and keep society running. Uh, because you know the the level of disruption is is extremely uh, concerning in its own right.
0: So let's run down that path just a little bit. If you were able to give guidance, if, if, yeah. If you if you if you were the man, everybody's coming to you and say, "Okay, Doctor Katz, you are in charge from now on." What are we telling everybody? what What would your recommendation be for the the broader population as a whole? For a, the governor of this of the state, what should he or she be saying? What should we be telling people to do? Because you're right. The big message right now is drastic. It's shut it all down.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, so uh, for better or for worse, Brad, I, I, I have gotten my ideas to the governor here in Connecticut, to the public health leadership. Um, you know, I'm, I'm routinely corresponding with people in positions of decision making authority. I say for better or worse because, you know, all I can do is, is use my training and my intuition and the data to, to produce my best speculation on the right responses. Sure. Uh, because nobody's going to know the right response until this is all over. And we have 2020 hindsight and maybe not even then, because, you know, the problem will be, we'll only have the data based on what we did. We won't have the data based on what we didn't mm-hmm. do. So we, we may never know the, the absolute best response. Um, there are all sorts of uncertainties here. You know, when people get over this, are they completely immune? Are they immune for life? Are they immune for the season? Does this go away forever? Does it come back in? You like the flu so much? We, we don't know. But to the extent that I can reach authorities and to the extent that I am uh, working to disseminate my point of view, uh, it's captured in my latest column. Uh, I'll share that link with you, Brad, so you can post it. Perfect. Uh, Coronavirus mortality reality check. Basically what I'm arguing for, and and so far as I know, I'm the only person arguing for this, which makes me nervous, to be honest, um, because I'm not sure I'm right. Um, I kind of feel like we're doing everything wrong and um, I can't stay quiet, but I don't want anybody to think I'm sure. <laughs> I mean, sure. No, nobody, nobody should be sure. If anybody tells you they're absolutely sure about what we should do, you should you know, run, run away. the other way, <laughs> run the other way. <laughs> yeah. But I think we should be doing what I call vertical interdiction rather than horizontal interdiction. So again, I use the word interdiction to refer to anything we can do to shelter people from this disease um, and protect them from getting infected and, and getting severe infection, um, and being at risk of dying from it. Uh, and some of that's personal hand-washing, keeping, you know, don't hug, don't shake hands, uh, stop touching, you know, all of that. Um, and some of it's public health like, you know, having testing away from hospitals and clinics and, uh, providing people safe ways to access, uh, the food and and essentials they need and on it goes. Um, Horizontal interdiction is what we're doing, which basically is shut everything down, send kids home from school, send kids home from college, uh, shut down businesses, and, and you know, essentially try to prevent spread at the level of a population of 360 million people at large. And and by way of analogy, you know, I don't know if this is a great analogy or not, but it's the one I put in my column today, this to me seems a little bit like saying, okay, we're going to take all of our lifeguards send them randomly out to the population to, to kind of shout the message that everybody should learn how to swim. I think we should have the lifeguards at the beaches and pools. And so that's what I mean by vertical interdiction. And, and by that, I mean, I think kids could be in school. And I think we, yeah. what we should have is, you know, I mean, again, if, if I ran the zoo uh, and, I, and I'm reluctant to share a message that's at odds with what people are hearing, because I don't want to give them another reason sure. for anxiety. Um, but but again, you know, I think kids. Um, there has not been, to my knowledge, a single death of this disease anywhere in the world in someone um, under age 30. And if, if there has, it's been extremely rare. But none none at all in children. So you know, they, they seem to be especially prone to mild and even asymptomatic infection. Now, is there concern for teachers and school administrators? Yeah, uh, we need to identify the vulnerable among them. And all schools and all public places should have policies for allowing those who have chronic illness, immunocompromised, or are elderly to stay away. So, you know, even, even if we were to continue running our society as usual, we'd have to poke holes in it to protect the vulnerable. Same thing really with all other work. I think, you know, young, healthy people under 50 could go about their business, the economy could keep humming. And, and we should be clear, Brad, I, you know, I, I do think there are potential costs, even in lives, of shutting everything down, you know, at some point disruptions in goods and services and things people need, um, you know, have the potential to prevent somebody from getting a prescription medication they need. And, you know, I'm, I'm not sure we have, we have fully collated the society spanning consequences of kind of shutting everything down for an indefinite period of time. So uh, I would would say we identify the especially vulnerable based on everything we know. We've had several months of watching this virus spread around the world. We've seen who's gotten better. We've seen who's gotten really sick. There's a lot to learn, but we know a lot already. And we could leverage what we know to preferentially direct our, our resources to protect the especially vulnerable. Let elderly people Stay home. Um, develop means to deliver their groceries to them. Keep them away from large gatherings. Do not let them gather with the college students we just sent home from places like Chicago, L.A., New York, which has the highest concentration of uh, coronavirus in the country. And you know, as a for instance, I've got three of my own kids back at my house, and they're all in the age group. Uh, one's from New York, two are from Boston. Mm. You know, they're all in the age group where they you know they've been they've had been at parties. They've, you know, they've interacted with lots of people. Some of their friends have traveled, who the heck knows if they've been exposed. So what we're doing in my own family is saying, okay, it's fine for you to be home with mom and me, but, uh, my grand, your grandparents, my parents, uh, not happening. They've Mm -hmm. got to stay away. And we actually, uh, we had a very significant family event yesterday. We lost one of our, our dogs. Um, and ordinarily my parents who don't live too far away, you know, would have been there for this somber, ceremony of remembrance for Zuzu. Um, But we had to just share that with them digitally Mm. uh, because we don't think they should be home where we've got three young adults who have come to us from two large cities where the level of exposure is certainly not zero. You know, we don't know um, that kind of thing. So I would say we ought to be doing that society-wide And my worry is, you know, we sort of carve society up into don't go to school, don't go to work, but gather any which way you want in multi-generational households. And, you know, we may be creating innumerable little pockets of transmission. So again, I'm reluctant to share what I think is a somewhat, uh, I I don't tend to be a contrarian. I like consensus. Um, I prefer agreeing with my colleagues. I I just, I I have the, the deep concern that we are producing the maximal level of social disruption without achieving highly efficient protection of people who are most clearly vulnerable to severe infection. So I would say under those very trying circumstances, you ought to do all you can and, you know, confer with the health professionals you trust to the extent possible. um, but identify the especially vulnerable. And again, people over 70 in particular, those over 80, um, and figure out strategies to help keep them away from crowds uh, until we can issue the all-clear. I don't know for sure what the all-clear is going to look like. Right. That, that's the other thing. Yeah, that's the other thing that worries me about let's just shut everything down. It really is indefinite. I mean, what's the all-clear? It, it's a little, you know, when when we're debating um, military conflict, Brad, you know, I think one of the questions the public at large and, and Congress rightly poses is, okay, what what's what's the exit strategy? You know, when is it mission accomplished? When do we get out of Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, you know, whatever the the, Vietnam, for that matter, you know, whatever the potential quagmire might be? And if you get involved in battle without any clarity on what constitutes the all clear, the exit strategy, that's that's really ominous. So here, what would it be? When when do kids go back to school? When you know, is it when there's zero transmission for in a state, in a nation, is it when we confirm that everybody has immunity? Is it when there's a cure, an effective treatment, a vaccine, some combination of those? I, I don't think there's been any clear dialogue on that topic. I would say, you know, if you practice vertical interdiction, we we spare the um, the particularly vulnerable we have much greater clarity on the all clear. You know, a lot of us are going to get this. Uh, Those of us who are vulnerable to getting it are going to get it and get it over with. And with, you know, within this, that span that we just talked about of, you know, some small number of weeks, um, you know, potentially were we to adopt my approach, most of us would have it and be over it and presumably be immune. And, you know, what we'd have to then verify is that, you know, people post recovery don't transmit the virus, at which point, you know, th- th- these elderly relatives we've been sheltering from us uh, can come back out and, and resume their normal lives. Otherwise, I don't know when they get to do it. It's
0: a good question. Good question. L- let's, let's kind of run down that path a little bit. You're very connected with the health and wellness coaching community. What recommendations would you have for them to help their clients and others to actually thrive during this period? Not, not just get through it, not survive, not just put your head down, but to actually thrive through this period? What, however long that ends up being.
1: So one thing would be, and, and I'm finding it hard to take my own advice on this and, and, you know, you're part of the reason, not in a bad way, Brad, and, you know, in just the right way, you're providing a service, but everybody needs to talk about this right now. So I'm trying to do my day job. I'm trying to look away and I can't because right. you know, basically every time I go back to my inbox, there's 72 more questions about. Right. To right. Toronto, Same right? thing. So, exactly. Yeah, yeah, right. We, we just can't escape. But I, I would say if you can, if you're not a source of guidance, for everybody else, advise your clients to look away. Again, 3 million people die in the United States every year. And, and you know, before there was ever a pandemic, 3 million people every year. Uh, you know, what is that, 10,000 people a day? Um, you know, I mean, if you were paying fixed attention to every one of those cases, you'd be going mad sure. about you know the, the risk of living every day all the time. So, yes, there is a new cause of of illness and and death. But, you know, so far in the United States, we've had a total of, I think it's 70 deaths from coronavirus. Uh, We've had 50,000 from seasonal flu. So look away. Seriously, look away as best you can. Um, Second, um, you know, I mean, I would, especially for those vulnerable to severe infection. So, you know, if we want to make the cut point 50, 60, 70, um, you know, do all you can to minimize social contacts. Um, so, you know, other than people you already live with and, you know, essentially with whom you're committed to sharing your medical destiny, right? So you and your significant right. other are in this together, We're in. but yeah, but everybody else, uh, no touching, no hugs, no, no handshake. We need to make some adjustments. Um, keep your distance, um, stay away uh, from anybody who is, who's is coughing or ill. And, and we ask those who feel ill or are coughing to stay the heck away from everybody else until they know what's going on. Um, and then, you know, I, I do think this is a great time uh, since everything is sort of shutting down to turn a little bit inward. And, you know, if you don't do some relaxation method meditation, for example, great time to learn it. The resources are all available online. So take up meditation now. Um, I think being outside in sunlight uh, is extremely therapeutic. I mean, first of all, most viruses uh, have a hard time surviving in bright sunlight. I hope you have somewhere you live. If you don't, I hope it's coming soon to a place near you. Get out in it. Uh, You'll make some vitamin D. uh, You'll be in a relatively safe place. You'll be outside where you're not closely packed with other people. Uh, You can get some exercise uh, to the extent that you can bathe in nature. It's good for your soul. But you know, I I really do think that's highly therapeutic. Um, If you didn't have an optimal diet before, uh, you just sort of been tinkering with the idea. Uh, You know, there's no better time to start that than the present. Um, If you have any questions about that, I don't know if you mind if I throw in a personal pitch here.
0: No, I was going to actually ask you about your book (laughs) in our next question. So feel free to throw it out there now.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I, again, you know, I've had all sorts of questions about. um, You know, every every industry I think kind of wants. They, they want to help. They're sort of freaking out. But I also think there's a little bit of opportunism here, right? So sure. you know, now is a great time to tell people what supplements to take and what their diet should be and what superfoods are best. And I, I've been pretty reticent about that. I really do want to focus on, you know, sort of the infectious disease epidemiology. But the reality is that, you know, the great vulnerability to this, like all things, resides with failing health and, and suboptimal immune responses to the extent that that happens because we get old. Well, you know, we can't prevent chronological aging, but we actually can forestall biological aging. So, right. you know, you can be younger biologically than you are chronologically. I, I don't yet. I was asked one, one of those gazillion questions about coronavirus earlier today was, you know, what do we know about the experience in the blue zones? And my answer was, I don't know anything yet, but it would be very interesting because it may be that in the blue, you know, where everywhere else in the world, the mortality is concentrated in those over 80 in the blue zones, it may be concentrated in those over 95, right? Because, you know, essentially if you live in a place where health is optimally preserved with diet and lifestyle until you're a hundred, you know, your 95 is everybody else's 75 or 80. Right. Absolutely. So, you know, so we're waiting to see that, but you know, in the absence of data, I would say. Everything we know suggests the likelihood of that. And so you know what what we know that the Blue Zonians do is they eat an optimal diet of real food, not too much, mostly plants, lots of vegetables, fruits, legumes, grains, nuts, seeds, um, and uh, drink plain water when thirsty. They tend not to smoke. They're not excessively stressed out. So again, those those relaxation techniques, uh, they tend to be quite physically active. They get enough sleep. Uh, they have great social interactions, which is a bit of a problem right at this moment. So sure. you know, I think we have to re- we do have to rely a little bit more on, on digital tools to interact with one another. But I but I would say there is a real advantage to um, you know again physical activity, sleep, stress management, avoiding toxins like too much alcohol or tobacco as ever, and optimizing diet. And There's a lot about getting diet right that is directly related to immune system function. Um, you know, whether it's balancing immune system responses with healthy, unsaturated fats, uh, fostering the the functioning of um, our lymphocytes, which fight viruses with optimal levels of zinc from mushrooms, grains, nuts, and seeds, to some extent seafood, uh, whether it's getting a right balance between potassium and and sodium, whether it's getting a, a rich array of antioxidants that protect our cells, and those come from a variety of vegetables and fruits, as well as whole grains and all The usual suspects, many, many reasons, both right now and in general, to focus on optimizing diet. So, the book we mentioned this is my latest, uh, co authored with Mark Bittman. Uh, and it, you know, <laughs> what were the odds? This book that we've been so excited about for so long called Seriously. How to Eat. Yeah, it yeah, came out. Why I now? Mean,
0: like, exactly. Why
1: now, right? Right at the moment. Well, and, and even
0: you your talk? article in the Wall Street Journal last weekend, I thought that was fantastic. And and you oh, talk about you. timing of it. It was perfect. <laughs> it was perfect. We needed it. Was we it? need to hear that. Yeah?
1: Okay. Well, thank you. Good. Yeah. So, I, you know, but you write a book and everybody in this country is constantly and forever focused on diet, except when there is a massive pandemic. And so naturally our book came out right in the middle of a massive pandemic. But first, you know, if you're stuck at home, you may need something good to read, and the book's really fun. Uh, and again, it's called How to Eat, All Your Food and Diet Questions Answered, and it's available in all the usual places, in stores, if anybody's still going to stores or online. Um, but you know, we do, we talk about uh, immune system function and specific nutrients and specific foods, and, and there's no question, getting that right is extremely important to health over time, but it absolutely is relevant to right now. Uh, and you know, we don't have perfect control and there are a lot of unknowns, but making yourself, you know, as healthy and robust and vital right now, as we wait to see how all this plays out is pretty much the best you can do. So I would definitely factor optimal eating into your personal strategy.
0: No question. No question. Dr. Katz really appreciate it. Again, you're getting hammered from all, all sides asking <laughs> questions. And, and I so appreciate you joining us at short notice. Great job and, and keep up the great work.
1: Thank you very much, Brad. Again, I appreciate you because, you know, a platform like this is, is you know, it's helping to get the word out. And I, I think the final thing I want to say, this is important for people, you know, I'm, I'm just like you, uh, you know, I'm, my world's disrupted. I've got family, my parents are 80, you know, we're all in this together. So, you know, I would say, let's do the, the best we can to practice sensible prevention and protection. Look away whenever you can keep calm, carry on.
0: Perfect. Great way to finish. Thank you, as always, for joining us. Our reason for existing is you. So thanks for tuning in every week, for sharing with friends and peers, and a really big thank you to those of you who have taken the time to leave a positive review and maybe even subscribe on Apple or Spotify or some of those spots. By the way, did you know, this is kind of cool, this just happened. Did you know the Catalyst Health, Wellness, and Performance podcast is the only podcast that allows you to earn continuing education credits as a coach? We're pretty excited. Details are available at CatalystCoachingInstitute.com. And again, always feel free to reach out to us if you have any questions coaching related. Results at CatalystCoachingInstitute.com. Now, folks, let's go get better. Today is the day. The day. The next step in our journey starts right now. Let's do this. This is Dr. Bradford Cooper signing off. Make it a great rest of your day and I'll speak with you soon on the next episode of the Catalyst Health Wellness Performance Coaching Podcast or maybe over on the new YouTube coaching channel, which as you, if you don't know yet, you can literally find at youtube.com slash coaching channel.